To enter heaven, you must believe in Jesus as the eternal God, that he was virgin born, lived a sinless life, died a substitutionary death to atone for my sin, was resurrected and ascended into heaven to rule and reign forever. Welcome to the MANA Bible Lessons Podcast. MANA is a Bible study life group that meets at Valley Baptist Church in Bakersfield, California every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. However, if you're listening from another part of the world, then we welcome you and we invite you to stay tuned after the lesson to hear how you can submit your prayer request to be on our prayer sheet. Thank you for joining us. And now here's Brad Hannock. students, if you would open your Bibles to John chapter 8. John chapter 8, we're going to begin in verse 12. As you know, we're in a series in the Gospel of John. Gospel of John was written probably between 55 and 60 years after Jesus ascended into heaven, so probably somewhere around 90 to 95 AD, right near the end of, of John's life. Um, John wrote it in the last chapter, to demonstrate two things. One, to demonstrate the deity of Christ, to document and demonstrate that Jesus Christ is God come in the flesh, and then to persuade those who read the gospel to believe in Jesus as their Savior so they can experience eternal life. That was the point of the book. Where we are in the timeline, Jesus has been ministering now for about three years. He was six months away from his death, and the Jewish religious leaders have been plotting to kill him now for about two, two and a half years. So he's been under enormous opposition and pressure, which we will again see today. So let's begin the narrative at John 12, or John 8, verse 12. Then Jesus again spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Here's the principle. Those who follow Jesus as Savior and Lord by trusting and obeying Him will experience His presence, His, pro, His protection, and His guidance. Let me say that again. Those who follow Jesus as Savior and Lord by trusting and obeying Him will experience His presence, His protection, and His guidance. So the context of this chapter, and actually the chapter before, it takes place during the Feast of Tabernacles. Uh, this was one of three mandatory feasts the Jewish nation celebrated, and it was by far the most joyful. It commemorated God's faithful provision for Israel during their 40 years wandering in the wilderness. As you recall, God had provided manna, interesting name of a Sunday school class, huh? manna for heaven for them to eat in the wilderness. For 40 years, they ate the manna. And earlier, we discussed a couple of weeks ago in chapter 6, uh, Jesus alluded to God's provision of manna when he said, quote, I am what? The bread of life, right? So manna was God's gift to Israel for physical sustenance, physical provision, physical life. And Jesus is God's gift of spiritual life and sustenance, not just for Israel, but for the entire world. That's why Jesus said, I am the bread of life. This feast also commemorated God's provision of water. As you recall, when they were walking in the wilderness, the desert there, the Sinai Desert, is particularly dry. They had no water, and they were complaining, and God told Moses, speak to the rock, and I will bring water for you out of the rock, miraculously, and that happened. So they celebrated and commemorated that miracle of water from the rock in the wilderness, and the priests would take a golden pitcher 
and pour water out by the side of the altar to commemorate God's miraculous provision. And at the very moment, Jesus made a very compelling offer of salvation, and he said, quote, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Jesus is the only satisfaction for people's spiritual thirst. Now, Jesus makes a third claim, and he says, I am the light of the world. And this recalled God's pillar of fire and cloud in the wilderness. As you recall, when they left Egypt, it said that God's pillar of cloud and fire went before them, the cloud during the day to shelter them from the blazing sun, and the pillar at night to bring them warmth and to protect them from their enemies. So they experienced God's continual presence with them because wherever the pillar went, that's where they went. There's no record any day during that 40-year period where the pillar of cloud and pillar of fire were not with them. God was continually with his people. And Jesus made the same promise. What did he say? I will never leave you or forsake you. And the pillar of fire protected Israel. And in the same way, Jesus protects his people today through his Holy Spirit. And the last thing is God's cloud and fire guided Israel through the wilderness. Have you ever thought about getting lost? You know, getting lost in a mall is a problem. Getting lost in a desert is lethal. It's lethal. You can die for heat and lack of, uh, lack of water. So God's pillar of cloud and God's pillar of fire guided Israel throughout this 40-year period. And it led them to Mount Sinai to hear the law. It led them to multiple oases of water in the desert. And finally, it led them into the promised land. And God guides us in the same way today through his word that you have in your lap, through his spirit that lives in your heart, through your circumstances, and wise counsel from God's people. So the context of this is in the temple. Now, the Feast of Tabernacles has just concluded. It's probably the day after. Jesus is teaching in the temple, and the temple complex is divided into multiple sections, multiple courts. Outside the temple wall, outside the walls and gates, you have the Gentiles' courtyard. Now, anyone could go to the Gentiles' courtyard. You didn't have to be a Jew, you didn't have to be a proselyte. Anybody and everybody could go to the uh, Gentiles' courtyard. Inside the beautiful gate, when you walk through that, you come to the women's courtyard. And the women's courtyard, only Jewish men or Jewish women or Jewish proselytes, that means Jewish converts, could get inside. So you had to be a native-born Jew, an ethnic Jew, or a religious convert to Judaism to get inside the women's uh, courtyard. Now inside the massive gate of Nicanor, you can see the gate there, it kind of divides the temple complex into two pieces. Just inside that is called the Israelites' court, and only Jewish males were allowed beyond the Nicanor gate to get inside that. Finally, right next to the Holy of Holies came the priest's courtyard, and in order to be there, you had to be of the tribe of Levi, and you actually had a job description to do there. So Jesus is teaching this teaching in the court of the women, and this is where the treasury was located. Now, the court of the women was by far the largest of all the courtyards. It was massive. And it could hold thousands of worshipers, especially during feast time, since many, many people came to Jerusalem from out of town to celebrate uh, the Feast of Tabernacles. It was likely jammed with people. It was the most visited place in the temple, and that's one reason why it was called the treasury, because they put 13 what they called shofar chests in the court of the women to collect the offerings for the functioning of the temple. They call them shofar chests because 
the mouth where you would put the money in was shaped like a trumpet. Think of a tuba. A tuba has a big opening bell, and then it goes down to a narrower uh, opening, and at the bottom of this shofar chest, they'd have a locked receptacle where the money was. So people would come by and drop it in the tuba-shaped entrance. And this is one of the reasons why Jesus took the Pharisees to task, and he says, you walk by and throw your coins in so it makes a lot of noise, so everybody can see how much money you're giving. This is where the widow gave her last two coins in the women's courtyard in one of these 13 shofar chests where they funded uh, the temple. I want you to notice Jesus' specific words when he stood in the women's courtyard. He said, I am the light of the world. He did not say, I am a light. He did not say, I am a light only in Jerusalem. He said, he did not say, I am only one of many lights. I am only limited to one location. He said, I am the light of the world. His claim was exclusive, only light, and all-encompassing for the world. I am the one and only light for the entire world, no exceptions, no limitations. I also want you to notice that he used intentionally the name of God, I am. Now, when God called Moses at the burning bush, To free Israel from Egyptian bondage, Moses gave God multiple excuses. Finally, he said, Lord, when I go to the sons of Israel and I say to them, the God of your fathers sent me to you, they may say to me, what is his name? And God said to Moses, what? I am who I am. You'll see that in your scripture, and it's all caps, Exodus 4. Now, remember the name I am as the tetragrammaton, Y-H-W-H, Y-H-W-H. There are no vowels in the Hebrew language. We add the vowels later, so we put uh, an A and an E in there, so we pronounce it Yahweh, Y-A-H-W-E-H. In in the Hebrew, it's Y-H-W-H. And God said to Moses, Yahweh is my personal covenant name. And that's the name the nation of Israel is to use when they refer to me. So when Jesus said, I am the light of the world, he was making a direct claim to be deity, a direct claim to be God, and everyone knew it. The Jews knew the scriptures had multiple references to the coming Messiah as the light of the world. Matter of fact, the Old Testament has multiple references to the Messiah as the light of the world. Why do you need light? Adam and Eve unfortunately, chose to rebel against God. At their rebellion, sin entered the world. Ever since then, the earth has been a dark place. In case you haven't noticed, spiritual truth is often hidden and ignored. The promised Messiah will come from heaven to bring God's light to the spiritually dark world. Isaiah 42, 6-7, God is speaking to his Messiah. Quote, this is God the Father speaking to God the Son the Father to Jesus, I am the Lord, I have called you Messiah in righteousness. I will also hold you Messiah by the hand and watch over you. And I will appoint you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon and those who dwell in darkness from the prison. Isaiah 49.6. I will also make you a light of the nations so that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. 
Here's the principle. Jesus is the light of the world. He opens spiritually blind eyes and saves people from their slavery to sin. Jesus is the light of the world. He opens spiritually blind eyes and saves people from their slavery to sin. Now, he opens blind eyes so that they can see what? See the truth. See spiritual reality. And he brings salvation to the ends of the earth and sets people free from sin so they can have an eternal life relationship with God. So physical light dispels physical darkness. You've ever noticed wherever you just light a small candle, it dispels darkness. That's the power of light. So when Jesus says, I am the light of the world, that was a significant claim. John MacArthur notes that Jesus is the light of truth that dispels the darkness of falsehood. Jesus is the light of wisdom that dispels the darkness of ignorance. Jesus is the light of holiness that dispels the darkness of impurity. Jesus is the light of joy that dispels the darkness of sorrow. Jesus is the light of life that dispels the darkness of death. Scripture often refers to God as light. Think of Psalm 27.1. The Lord is what? My light and my salvation. 1 John 1.5. God is light and in him is no darkness at all. So Jesus, his claim that he was the light of the world was made very specifically where it was made and when it was made, and it was made in conjunction with a ritual that took place during the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, during the feast, they would light candelabras, many, 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 many candelabras in the court of the women, the largest courtyard. And there were dozens, if not hundreds, of these candelabras, and I let them burn all night. It was a memorial and a commemoration of God's pillar of fire that led Israel through the wilderness. They would light all these candelabras and light up uh, the temple. Josephus records that when these candelabras were lit, the temple was illuminated like a flashing diamond, and you could see it for miles. So when this, the whole temple was illuminated by these candelabras to recall and remember God's pillar of fire. That temple lit up, became a physical picture of God's fire of presence and protection and guidance. And Jesus is now making the claim, in light of that, I am the light of the world. Now, we don't know exactly when Jesus made that claim. It's likely, however, the feast has just concluded and the candelabras are now extinguished. So Jesus makes this declaration, I am the light of the world. He's saying, I am the light that will never be extinguished. I am the light that will never go out. Um, remember that God's pillar of fire led Israel from slavery in Egypt into freedom in Canaan. How does Jesus parallel that? Well, Jesus is the ultimate light who leads those who believe in him from the slavery of sin into heaven, God's eternal kingdom. Now, you don't get into heaven by looking at the light. You don't get into heaven by admiring the light. You get into heaven by following the light. And God doesn't stand still, for those of you that are wondering. Jesus said what? If any man will come after me, let him deny himself, 
take up his cross, and follow me. When Jesus called his disciples, he only used two words. Two. That's all. Follow me. And they did. Immediately. In other words, he didn't offer any explanation. He just said, follow me. The message is very simple. Follow me without qualification. Follow me without limitation. Follow me without exception. Follow me wherever I go. Follow me whenever I go. Follow me however I go. That call is to us in exactly the same way. Most people follow Jesus up to a point only when it doesn't cross a line that they've set in the sand. I'll follow you, Lord, as long as it's convenient. I'll follow you, Lord, as long as my friends do. I'll follow you, Lord, as long as it doesn't suffer. This is an unconditional call to follow me wherever, whenever, and however I go. What you can be sure, though, if you follow Jesus, the light of the world, he will always lead you away from darkness. And he will always lead you into a closer relationship with himself. Which begs the question, what does it mean to follow? Well, it for sure means to trust and obey. Not occasionally, but continually trust and obey. There are five different applications or word pictures. Follow here means to follow in the sense of a soldier who follows their commander. Follow means a slave who follows their master. Follow means someone who follows a wise counselor, right? Someone who gets wise counsel and they actually follow wise counsel. I know some of you are thinking about your relatives and saying they could follow wise counsel. And I'm the wise counsel, right? Yeah, I feel good. It's someone who follows the law, obeys the law, stays within the confines of the law, and it can mean a student who actually follows their teacher's line of reasoning. So when the teacher is trying to make a point, they say, I follow you. I understand what the teacher is trying to say, how they're trying to say it. I follow their logic. So follow means to accompany. It means to join. It means to learn. It means to assist. It means to obey. And the nation of Israel had followed God's pillar of cloud and fire across the wilderness into the promised land. Jesus says to us and to everyone, if you follow me, the light of the world, I will grant you eternal life. What was the Pharisee's response to that? Verse 13. So the Pharisee said to him, you are testifying about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered and said to them, even if I testify about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going, but you do not know where I came from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh, I am not judging anyone. But even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for I am not alone in it, but I am the Father who sent me. Even in your law it has been written that the testimony of two men is true. I am he who testifies about myself, and the Father who sent me testifies about me. Here's our principle. Jesus' testimony about his deity is true because he came from heaven and God validates his claim. Jesus' testimony about his deity is true because he came from heaven and God validates his claim. It's interesting that the Pharisees don't 
biblically or scripturally argue with his claim that he's the light. What they do argue is that his claim about himself has no valid legal standing because he's a witness in his own defense. Now, you have to understand that the Mosaic law required two impartial witnesses to establish truth in a court of law. Your own testimony about yourself in a court of law was inadmissible in the Mosaic law. You could not testify on your own behalf and say, I swear on a stack of Bibles, I didn't do that or whatever happened to you. That was inadmissible. It took two other impartial witnesses to demonstrate and validate truth in a court of law under the Mosaic law. Now, human laws require multiple witnesses. You know why they require multiple witnesses? Because humans are fallible, always, and often deceitful. So we want more than one collaboration that, in fact, what you're saying is true. And they need to be impartial because we tend to lie to benefit ourselves pretty frequently. That's just human nature. Now, what's a witness? A witness is someone who has seen, heard, or personally experienced something about which they are going to give testimony. The Pharisees are arguing that Jesus is not a reliable witness. In fact, Jesus is an expert witness. Why? Well, he's testifying about heaven. Does Jesus know anything about heaven? Well, he created it, and he's lived there with his Father in heaven, and he came from earth to heaven, so he has the authority to speak truthfully about eternal life with God in heaven and how to get there. John 1.18 says, No one has seen God, they're talking about the Father, at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of a Father, that's Jesus Christ, He has explained Him. He has revealed Him. If you want to know what God the Father is like, look at Jesus. Jesus told Philip, Have I been so long with you and yet you do not know me? He who has seen me has what? Seen the Father. You want to know what the Father is like? Look at the Son. John 3.13, Jesus is defending his position. He said, no one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. I'm competent to give testimony about heaven because that's my home. I came from heaven. Now, the Jewish religious leaders, they're passing judgment about things they've never experienced. They've never been to heaven, and now they're challenging Jesus' credibility as a witness about heaven. And since the Jewish leaders don't know where Jesus came from or where he's going, Jesus said, you're not competent to judge me. As a matter of fact, they don't even know the town he was born in. They rejected him as Messiah because they thought he came from Galilee, right? That's where he was was raised in Nazareth. And Messiah was supposed to be born in the town of Bethlehem, right? Since he was raised in Galilee and had a Galilean accent, they assumed that he was born there. But no one ever did any homework and checked out his actual birthplace. You would think if they were interested, they would talk to Mary and say, where was Jesus born? He was born in Bethlehem. Pretty clearly, that's messianic credentials, but they didn't care enough to check out his credentials. So they think they're qualified to pass judgment on Jesus, but actually, he is going to judge them. Jesus said, you judge according to the flesh, according to the flesh which means you judge superficially. You judge on external, physical appearances, what looks on the outside. 
you don't judge based on internal realities. Now the Jews, the Jewish religious leaders we're talking about here, every time we say the Jews, John is talking about the Jewish religious leaders. Sadducees, Pharisees, scribes, the, the elite. He's talking about Congress and the Supreme Court. That's the Sanhedrin, Congress and Supreme Court. So you know who he's talking about. They judged everybody according to their own external rules, and they had thousands of them. And their judgment was corrupt, it was self-righteous, and Jesus said, I'm not judging anyone, which was true. At his first coming, he didn't come to judge. He came to save, right? John 3.17 said, For God did not send his Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. However, at his second coming, he is going to come as the judge, and he's going to rule and reign. John 5.22 says, For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son. So Jesus says, My judgment is true, my evaluation is true, because there are two witnesses that testify about me. Number one, myself and my heavenly Father. And my judgment is accurate because I came from heaven. And I'm God, and I only speak the things that I have seen and heard from my Father in heaven. By the way, human courts require multiple witnesses in the Mosaic law because humans are fallible. Is Jesus fallible? Does he make mistakes? No. Any judgment that is rendered by God is 100% accurate. So whatever you read in the Bible comes from God. The Word of God is always 100% accurate all the time. Now, the Jewish religious leaders are judging according to human standards, and Jesus is judging according to divine standards. And we run into that the world today on a routine basis. People trust human opinion more than they trust God's truth. Verse 19. So they were saying to him, where is your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, and no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. So the Jews now attack his family heritage. When he mentions his heavenly father, they say, where is your father? Now they knew that his earthly father, Joseph, was already dead. He had been dead for some time. Mary was a widow. So they take a dig at Jesus, really, and they say, how can your earthly father Joseph, who is dead, bear witness to your heavenly mission? Are you consulting with a dead man? I mean, this is really an insult, right? Uh, pretty tender topic. His father Joseph, obviously, a good father, had died, and now they're basically uh, chastising Jesus um, for supposedly consulting with someone who's dead. Jesus said, you don't know me or you don't know my father. We know that Jesus is talking about his heavenly father. Next week, we're going to find out during this whole conversation, the Jews have not yet figured out that Jesus is talking about his heavenly father. Now, that's pretty thick as a brick, but routinely they would mistake on purpose spiritual reality, and they would think about it in physical terms. Now, these Jewish leaders are the spiritual leaders of the nation, and Jesus says, you don't know my father, and you don't know the scriptures that talk about me. And they try to arrest Jesus again. Now, in the past chapter, I think verse chapter 7, I believe they try and arrest him three times. And every time it says, 
They were unable to do that because his hour had not yet come. It wasn't time for him to go to the cross, so human uh, intention of arresting him and prosecuting him and executing him were not yet. He's got six months before his date with the cross. Verse 21, Jesus said to them again, I go away and you will seek me and will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews were saying, surely he will not kill himself, will he, since he says, where I am going, you cannot come. And he, Jesus, was saying to them, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Here's the principle, if you're interested. To get into hell... Trust in your own self-righteousness, love this world, and refuse to believe in Jesus as Savior and Lord. If you want to go to hell, there are guaranteed ways to get there. Here's the three. Trust in your own self-righteousness, love this world, and refuse to believe in Jesus as Savior and Lord. Now, our world has many problems, right? You look at the news, or you read the papers, or you watch your news flow, and you're buried in problems. None of the news media generally talks about the one existential eternal problem that people face. And that problem is that humanity, every single person, is separated from God who created them. There is a humanly unbridgeable, infinitely wide canyon that separates holy God from sinful humanity. And this separation is a result of sin which entered the human race when Adam and Eve chose to rebel against God. Ever since Adam and Eve, every human has been born in sin. We sin because it is our nature to sin. Sin is our DNA. You cannot fix that from the outside in. It has to be fixed from the inside out. We need a new nature, and we cannot provide that ourselves because our sin separates us from holy God. All religions except Christianity, I don't care if you're talking about Buddhism, Hinduism, Islam, whatever it happens to be, all religions except Christianity tell people that they can solve their sin and separation problem from God by building a bridge across the canyon that separates them from God. Religion tells you you can build the bridge yourself that will bridge the canyon between you and God. And you can enter God's presence if you do enough good works, if you stop bad habits, if you perform the right rituals, if you conduct the right ceremonies, or if you endure enough suffering. There's this laundry list of things you can do that will build a bridge from where you are now in sin into the holiness of God. Now that is self-righteousness, building your own bridge. Self-righteousness is trusting your own moral goodness as sufficient for God to let you into his heaven. So the first way to get into hell is trust your own self-righteousness. Now, the Jewish religious leaders were self-righteous. They didn't think they needed a Savior. They kept all the laws, all the regulations, all the ceremonies, all the rituals, and they were absolutely sure that they had earned salvation. They were utterly sure they were going to heaven. It's really arrogant on the part of humans to think that they can earn perfect, holy God's favor by their own deeds. God has an opinion about that subject. He has an opinion about human self-righteousness. He says in Isaiah 64, 6, 
For all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. Because unless we're cleansed from sin and given a new nature, our righteous deeds are what? Filthy. They're corrupted by sin because we are sinners. God's standard is 100% moral perfection, and everyone falls short of that standard. That's why we need a Savior. Now, Jesus told the Jews, I go away. He's prophesying his coming death on the cross, his resurrection, and his ascension. You know what's important to remember about that? Salvation is a time-limited offer. Salvation has an expiration date. And it could be when your heart stops beating the last time. It could be when God says, have it your way, I'm done calling you. That's called dead men walking. You're physically alive, you're spiritually dead, and God is done. Romans 1 says, I'm abandoning you to your own way. So you never know when God's going to stop calling. That's why Scripture always says, today is the day of salvation. Today is the day of salvation. Now, Jesus tells them, where I'm going, you cannot come. And the Jewish religious leaders conclude that since for sure they're going to heaven, that means Jesus must be going to hell. They conclude that he's going to commit suicide and therefore go to hell. Now, for the Jewish mind, the most heinous crime you could commit is suicide. It's self-murder. Furthermore, they believed the deepest, darkest, most tormented pit of hell was reserved for those who murdered themselves. And this group was so self-righteously proud that they thought Jesus opposes us and for sure we're going to heaven, therefore he's going to the worst part of hell, and the way he's going to get there is he's going to kill himself. Now that's stuck on stupid. And that's how the unconverted mind reasons. They are blinded to the truth and they reliably draw foolish conclusions. That's the nature of you and I before we came to Christ and he reached out and grabbed us out of the pit and set us on a rock and gave us the Holy Spirit to enable us to think clearly. Of course, these Jewish religious leaders thought, hell is a place we will never go because, of course, we're going to get into heaven because of all our good deeds. And Jesus said, you got it backwards. You're going to seek me, and you're going to die in your sins. Now, to die in your sins is the supreme disaster, and John mentions it three times in two verses, so it's obviously pretty clear. To die in your sins means you die with your sins unforgiven. To die in your sins means you didn't repent before you died. There's no atonement for your sins. The penalty for your sins has not been paid by Jesus. Therefore, you have chosen to pay the penalty for your sins yourself for all eternity. Just read a stat. It's been calculated. This will encourage you on Easter. Thank God for the resurrection. That every day, 332,648 people die. Every day. That's about 13,860 deaths per hour or about 231 people dying every minute. That is a lot of dying. And all physical death came about as a result of sin, which separated us from the source of life, the Lord Jesus Christ. And as sad as physical death is, physical death is not the primary problem. It's what happens after we die 
That's the primary problem or the forever solution. Those who trust their own self-righteousness will spend eternity separated from God because self-righteousness worships self. It doesn't worship God. It exalts me above God. And that's the free way to hell. Jesus said, you're going to seek me and you're not going to find me. It's interesting. Did you know that everyone in hell will be a seeker? They will seek a way out of their torment. We know that because Luke 16 tells us the story of the rich man and Lazarus. And the rich man is in Hades, in hell. And he says to Abraham, Send Lazarus that he may put a drop of water on my tongue because I am in agony in this flame. Now, one of the horrors of hell is that you will, everyone there will finally know what they need and who they need, and they will seek and never find for all eternity. In hell, everyone in hell is sobbing, I did it my way. And that's a scream of guilt and remorse because they know they did it their way, and their way got them there, and God said, have it your way. I'm not going to violate your free choice. So the first way to get into hell is to trust your own self-righteousness. second way to get into hell is to belong to this world, to love this world and to refuse to let it go. Jesus told these leaders, hell is your home. Now, those of you that think Jesus was always meek and mild, you ain't seen nothing yet. The next couple of chapters will curl your hair. He says, you are from below. I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. The nature of these Jewish religious leaders, and by the way, the nature of all unrepentant sinners, is sinful and earthly. Their identity, their loyalty, their love, were for earthly things, and ultimately for hellish things. Jesus says, I have a completely different nature than you. I am from above, right? My nature is divine. I am from heaven. I am eternal, you are temporal. I am from heaven, you are from the earth. I live to do my Father's will, you reject me, and you live to do the will of your Father who is Satan. We'll get that in a couple chapters. Jesus belongs to heaven, they belong to this world. Well, what is this world? Jesus said, you are of this world. I am not of this world. Now when John uses the words, this world, he's not referring to the physical planet. He's referring to the invisible spiritual system that Satan organized to dominate the thoughts, belief, and actions of people on earth. It uses every human instrumentality, whether it's government, military, media, whatever it happens to be, it's anything that Satan can organize to oppose God. We know that Satan is the god of this age, and he promotes evil and deception in all its forms, and he uses the world system to oppose the god of the Bible. That's why... Have you noticed that there's not attack ads against Hinduism? They never attack Buddhism or Islam as being narrow-minded and bigoted and self-centered. Jesus Christ and those who follow them are the ones who are hated and persecuted by the world because Satan knows that only in Christ is their eternal life. And his agenda is to bring as many people to hell as he can because he's at war with God. And that's why this world is filled with lies and deception. When people look around and go, man, I don't know what to believe anymore. Well, no kidding. Satan's the power of the air. Of course, you should exercise discernment. That's why you pray the Holy Spirit for wisdom when you read stuff to say, 
Lord, show me what's truth here. Show me what's truth. The scribes and Pharisees were preoccupied with the things of this world. They loved the world system. They were controlled by their flesh, their eyes, and their pride. Jesus confronted them in Matthew 23 and says, you do all your deeds to be noticed by men. They love the approval of man, right? Rather than the approval of God. Their primary sin, and all sinners' primary sin, is one thing. Unrepentant sinners refuse to love the Lord their God with all their heart, all their soul, all their mind, and all their strength. What is the first commandment? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. A sinner says, I love me with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. Right? Me is God, not Jesus is Lord. God has an opinion about this world system, and we are commanded in 1 John 2.15, do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but it is from the world. Here is one of my favorite verses, John 16.13. In the world, you will have tribulation. Would you agree with that? Yes, we have tribulation. But the last half of this sentence is everything... But be of good cheer, be hilarious, be encouraged. I have overcome the world, right? By the way, we shouldn't be fearing the world. We should be bringing in the gospel. They're dying. They're lost. They're going to be separated from God in eternal hell if they don't repent and turn back. We should be praying for them. So the first way to get into hell is self-righteousness. The second way to get into hell is to love this world and refuse to let it go. The third way to get into hell is to refuse to believe in Jesus, verse 24. Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Now, I'm going to give you a long principle. Jesus is going to spell out what is required to enter into heaven. And it's based on believing the right things about Jesus. So what are the essentials you must believe about Jesus Christ in order to escape hell and enter heaven? It's the most important question you'll ever be asked. Here's what you must believe about Jesus Christ if you want to escape hell and enter heaven. To enter heaven, you must believe in Jesus as the eternal God, that he was virgin born, lived a sinless life, died a substitutionary death to atone for my sin, was resurrected and ascended into heaven to rule and reign forever. Let me say that again. To enter heaven, you must believe in Jesus as the eternal God, that he was virgin born, lived a sinless life, died a substitutionary death to atone for my sin, was resurrected and ascended into heaven to rule and reign forever. He's spelling out, if you want to get into heaven, you must believe the right things about who I am. Now, the original Greek does not contain the word he. Jesus said, unless you believe that I am, period. We've heard that before, right? I am is what? The name of God himself. Unless you believe that I am the eternal God, the second member of the Trinity. Number two, 
You must believe that Jesus is God incarnate in carcass, in the flesh. You must believe that Jesus came to earth in human flesh through the virgin birth, that the Holy Spirit conceived Jesus in Mary's womb. When Jesus came from heaven to earth in human form, he already was perfect deity, which he retained throughout his entire existence. He has never, never not been perfect deity. When he came to earth, he added sinless humanity. That's why we say Jesus is the only, one and only, God-man. Completely perfectly God and completely sinless humanity. Perfect God, perfect man. Fully God, fully man. Number three, you must believe that Jesus lived a sinless life. He could not have been our substitutionary sacrifice if he wasn't a perfectly innocent, perfect lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Remember when they offered lambs in the Old Testament, the lamb had to be perfect? No flaws. Jesus, the lamb of God, is morally perfect in every way. Jesus said, I came to fulfill the law. We know that he fulfilled all righteousness, which means that his perfect righteousness earned by a perfect life is given to us at the moment of salvation, which satisfies the Father's standard to enter heaven. Did you know the only reason you can get into heaven is because His righteousness is given to you as a gift. And when God looks at you now, and you sin every day, and I sin more than you do, He looks at the righteousness of Christ and says, I don't see that sinner Brad Hannock. I know he sinned 1,500 times today. I see my son's perfect righteousness, which covers all our sins. And that is a gift and an exchange. His righteousness, and He took our sin. That's the essence of the fourth one. You must believe that Jesus died on the cross as a substitutionary sacrifice to atone, to cover, to pay, to propitiate, to satisfy God's perfect justice for human sin, for everyone who believes in him. You must believe that Christ's death satisfied God's perfect righteousness completely. And lastly, you must believe that Jesus rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, sits at the right hand of God, is coming back to earth, and will rule and reign forever. Now, you're going to run into the people who want to know, what does it take to become a Christian? What do I need to believe about Jesus Christ? What do I need to believe in Jesus Christ in order to be saved from hell so I can get into heaven? you got it right here. It's not the warm fuzzy in your heart. It's a very specific set of claims that Jesus Christ made about himself. So he says, unless you believe that I am, unless you believe that I am everything I claim to be in Scripture, we've delineated that, you will not enter heaven. On the other hand, if you do believe, if you have trusted Jesus to pay the penalty for your sins by dying in your place, then God says, not guilty. And you will spend eternity with God in heaven. If you've rejected Jesus' offer to forgive your sins, then you have said, I'm going to pay my own sin debt myself. Because I don't need no Savior, right? And you'll spend eternity separated from God in hell. This, by far, is the most important decision you will face for all eternity because it lasts forever. And you say, Brad, I understand all that. I know you do. You have the Holy Spirit, who's been teaching you for decades, many of you. 
about this. You know people who don't know what it means to be saved. They don't know what it means because they don't think they need a Savior, right? Who convicts people of sin? The Holy Spirit does. So we need to be, especially on Easter, much, much in prayer that the Holy Spirit will open the hearts and minds of the people we love because he loves them more than you do and convict them, convince them that I am a sinner who needs a Savior. Don't ever stop praying. You should be praying until the second you leave here, right? Let's review the significance of what Jesus just told us in these verses. Those who follow Jesus as Savior and Lord by trusting and obeying him will experience his presence, his protection, and his guidance. And every one of you in the room have experienced that. Some of you already today. Most of the time you weren't even aware of it. Number two, Jesus is the light of the world in that he opens spiritually blind eyes and saves people from their slavery to sin. Number three, Jesus' testimony about his deity is true because he came from heaven and God validates his claims. He's a reliable witness. That's his home. He lives there. He's competent to, to give us expert testimony about it. Number four, if you want to go to hell, there is a way. Trust in your own self-righteousness, love this world, and refuse to believe in Jesus as Savior and Lord. On the other hand, to get into heaven, you can. It's only a decision. It's a choice. It's a response. By faith, you must believe in Jesus as the eternal God, that he was virgin born, lived a sinless life, died a substitutionary death to atone for my sin, was resurrected and ascended into heaven to rule and reign forever. Now, this is a lot of meat and potatoes for Easter Sunday. Amen? Amen. I know you are mature enough to chew on this this week, and the Holy Spirit will continue to teach you. If you choose Jesus, you can live forever because he conquered death with the resurrection. Amen? Amen? He is risen. He is risen indeed. Now that you know, do Manna meets at Valley Baptist Church at 4800 Fruitvale Avenue in Bakersfield, California every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. in the choir room. We would love for you to join us. Here at Manna, we believe in doing life together. So if you're in need of prayer, submit your request to Podcast at gmail.com and our class will be happy to pray for you. Thank you for joining us today. And now that you know, do.